If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 21 this evening. And if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, then you'll, you'll recall that it's finally time for the people of God to go to war. That the first five chapters of the book of Joshua are really taken up with, with preparation. Preparation to take over the promised land. And, and in chapter 5, we see a, a spiritual preparation happening with the circumcision of all the males that were born in the wilderness. And the people of God take the Passover in the very same manner that they took the Passover when they crossed the Red Sea, leaving Egypt. And so in many ways, you have a new people of Israel and so last week, chap, uh, Pastor Luke preached on Joshua's encounter with, with the commander of the Lord's army, who we know to be the Lord himself. And, and verses 13 to 16 uh, are crucial to our text this evening. And so if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a one-minute overview, because in order to understand our passage, you need to understand that passage as well. And in 13 to 16, we find Joshua, and he's walking outside of the city, of Jericho, and perhaps he's surveying the battle ahead. He's looking at the field, and very likely, probably questioning, how are we going to do this? How in the world are we going to siege this city? I think it's interesting if you think about it and you remember that Joshua's been there before, 40 years prior to that, right? When Moses sent the spies into Canaan. Joshua was one of the twelve. And and it was only he and Caleb who came back and reported that, yes, we can take the city, but the people rebelled and the people didn't trust in God. And so for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And now here he is, ready for battle. And he encounters this man with his sword drawn. And and at least probably 80-year-old Joshua goes up to this man and he asks him, he says, are you for us or are you against us? And the man responds and says, neither. And you quickly realize that Joshua is standing in the presence of God. And he hits the ground. And the question, which is not spoken there, but the question quickly becomes not Joshua asking God, whose side are you on? But God asking Joshua, again, not spoken, but saying, Joshua, whose side are you on? Are you on my side? Are you on God's side? And so Joshua responds and he says, what would you have me do? And he responds in worship. And he responds in obedience. And he says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And he reminds us again uh, of Moses' encounter with the Lord at the burning bush. And so from this encounter with God, Joshua is assured that the Lord is going to lead Israel into the promised land. And so our passage tonight begins as a continuation of that conversation with the commander of the Lord's army. So as we dive into chapter 6, the commander of the Lord's army is still talking with Joshua. God is still talking with Joshua. And so tonight the battle finally occurs. Joshua and the battle of Jericho. But if I'm going to be honest, it's not much of a battle. 
Because contrary to the children's song, and I've got to talk to Louise about this to make sure that we are theologically correct, Joshua doesn't fight a battle at Jericho. God fights the battle at Jericho. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 11, that for the people of Israel, it, it, it was not an exercise of military might, but an exercise of faith, of trusting and waiting for God to act. And so with that in mind, let's hear God's word tonight from Joshua, starting in, in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua has commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth, mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. And so he calls the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning. And the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. So they did this for six days. And on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. <clears throat> Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets blew. 
And the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. <clears throat> this is the reading of God's holy and an errant word. May he add his blessing to it tonight. Amen. So the world, the world has been enamored with people who keep exotic pets, specifically tigers. But long before Tiger King, there was Calvin and Hobbes. Right, 19, Calvin and Hobbes, 1985, Bill Watterson started this comic strip that became really one of the most famous and most popular comic strips of, of all time. And if you're unfamiliar with Calvin and Hobbes, uh, look at your parents and say, shame on you, mom and dad. Uh, but I, I recall as a child looking forward to the Sunday paper because you got a longer edition and longer version of Calvin and Hobbes, the adventure of a six-year-old boy, Calvin, and his trusty tiger, Hobbes. And in one particular Calvin and Hobbes article, they're standing outside. Calvin and Hobbes are standing outside at night, and the stars are shining above their heads, and they're just staring up at the sky. And Calvin says, you know, if people sat outside and they looked at the stars each night, I'll bet they'd live a lot differently. And Hobbes, the ever-faithful, trusty tiger, says, well, how so? And Calvin says, well, when you look into infinity, you realize that there are more important things than what people do all day. Now, young Calvin has a point, doesn't he? We all need reminders from time to time that help keep life in perspective. That when you look at the stars, you realize how small we are. And not insignificant, but mostly how big and how powerful God is. And our passage tonight served as a reminder for the people of Israel and to us. It's a reminder of who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And if you recall the theme that we have set for, for the book of Joshua that we're in on Sunday evenings, the theme that we, we wrote out was God saves, God leads, God gives, God keeps his promises. And that's exactly what we see tonight. When the story of Jericho is told, we are reminded of the faithfulness of God. We are reminded that God saves his people from the Canaanites. That he leads them into battle. That he gives Jericho into the hands of his people. And that God keeps his promises. And friends, that is the same message that we need tonight. So may we be reminded once again that God saves, that God leads, that God gives, that God keeps his promises. And there's three things I want us to look at from our passage tonight. The promise of victory, the plan of victory, and the provision of victory. First, the promise of victory. As I mentioned earlier, 
verses 1 through 5 are a continuation of the conversation that Joshua is having with, with God. Now, verse 1 can seem a little strange, but it's a, it's a parenthetical statement that is essentially is setting the stage for what's going on. So that's why it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None came in and none went out. It's still one conversation, but the author inserts that. And he does so to really help highlight the hopelessness of the situation. You know, if you recall back in chapter 2, there's a similar type language where the author of Joshua says that the gate is shut, that the spies are locked in the city of Jericho. Here we have that same language, but it's kind of twofold. For the people of Jericho, there's no going out. Sure, there's no coming in, but there's no going out. There's no escape. There's no bargaining. There's no deal. You're inside, you're inside. And for the people of Israel, it's a hopeless situation. Right? These are not hardened, trained military soldiers. They've been wandering in the wilderness. Right? No fighting experience. And so you begin to see that there's no slick military maneuver here. Yes, Joshua was a warrior, but there's no slick maneuver. You can't flank them. You can't sneak in the back door. You can't set up a Trojan horse. This is a fortified city, impenetrable. And from a human and really military perspective, it seems hopeless, which is precisely what the author wants us to see, that only God can do what is necessary to be done. And then you look and we read in verse 2, and it's the promise, the the same promise that is seen with the presence of God. And verse 2 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I will give. But this verb in the Hebrew, it is a completed action. I have given. It's a done deal. Joshua is standing in the shadow of this fortified city, an impossible task, and God declares the victory is guaranteed. It's a done deal. It's as if God's saying, the victory is already mine. It's already won. The victory's already happened. And I get the glory. Now, isn't it interesting that when we face impossible tasks, how quickly we grow weary, how quickly we slip into hopelessness and despair, how big those walls get, how tightly shut the city becomes. Isn't that often the case with us as well, that when our circumstances just seem completely unbearable and totally impossible. And while it is true that we should always cling to the promises of God, I don't want us to miss how the story of Joshua tonight as they face Jericho reminds us that especially 
amidst difficult circumstances and difficult situations and seemingly impossible challenges that, that you are no doubt facing. How vital it is that we cling to the promises of God for us that are ours through Christ. The promise to never leave or forsake us. The promise that you are loved. The promise that God longs to extend mercy and grace and kindness. The promise that those who he has called, he will never let go. Friends, that's good news for a weary soul. That even when we are at the end of ourselves and that those promises seem like impossible that they could actually apply to us. Even in those moments, those promises are still standing and they're present and they're true and they're certain. It's one of the reasons that, that it is so important that we gather each Lord's Day, morning and evening, to be reminded ourselves and to remind each other of the promises of God for our lives. And so we see the promise of victory at Jericho, which leads to God's plan of victory at Jericho. And as we'll see, this is a plan like no other plan humanly possible. No human being would have devised this plan. So verses 3 through 5, we see that God lays out <clears throat> excuse me, the plan of victory. And, and the plan is this. You're going to march around the city for six days, seven days. You're going to march around the city. For six days, you're going to march around the city while the priests blow their horns. And then on the seventh day, Jericho's going to fall. The walls are going to fall, and then you're going to take it over. And if you noticed, if you were reading all the sevens, right, seven priests, seven trumpets, seven times around the city, and on the seventh day, Israel runs into the city. In Hebrew, seven symbolizes completion, that a task is accomplished you recall creation on the seventh day what God rested and so here on the seventh day the task will be completed as well but it's interesting what Joshua later on in verse 10 tells the people he says on those first six days you're going to march but you're going to do so in complete silence you shall not shout you shall not make your voice heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. Can you even imagine God's plan of victory, his great plan of victory is walking in silence and waiting for God to act. Silence and waiting. Now listen, there's a lot of people at this point. How in the world that they kept silent, that Scripture doesn't tell us. But let's be honest. For some of you here, that would absolutely have been the hardest part. Silence. I mean, you know, you're walking around the city. You're with your friends, right? Hey, hey you know, you, you, right? Sign me up. I'm in that camp with you, right? I, if I can't talk, I don't want to do it. A silent retreat? Nope. Not, it's just not happening for me. Uh, I tried it once, and... I quit like halfway in because I, I just couldn't do it. Right? And, and God says, don't say a word. 
and they don't. You know, there's some months, months back, thinking about this silence, Randy Pope came and he did a leadership talk and he challenged some of the men in our church. He challenged us to sit and to listen and I was reminded of the importance and the need to sit and to listen. Friends, when was the last time you just sat and you sat before the Lord and you just listened in silence? Not talking, not moving, not filling it with empty space, with, with music or noise, just listening. Now, no doubt this seemed like a completely crazy plan, probably to Israel, but also to the people in Jericho. I mean, it must have seemed like utter ridiculousness to a watching world, to the inhabitants of Jericho. Day after day, all they're doing is walking in silence. And you, I mean, you have to wonder, what, what are they thinking? What, are they, what, is, what's, what is going through their minds? Are they like throwing things? Are they laughing? Are they jeering? Are they lo- you know, have you lost your mind? And yet we are again reminded that God's plan that God's plan has always been folly to the world. Right, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that what seems like folly to the world is what God uses to tear down every obstacle that gets in the way of the kingdom of God. That the foolishness of the cross is the wisdom of man. And here again, we are reminded that the way that the kingdom advances is not the way that the world would advance it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says that we're not waging war according to the flesh, that the weapons of our warfare are are not the flesh, but they have divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. And you say, what are our weapons? And it's the Word of God. It's prayer, and it's our Christian testimony. As James Boyce writes, he says, When we look at the evil forces, we may think that the ancient weapons of the church are inadequate. And we may be greatly tempted to abandon them and to use the world's tools, but this is a mistake. He said we need to listen to God, to obey faithfully to the end. And when we do, in God's own time, the walls of Satan's strongholds will tumble. You know, I recall years ago leading a Bible study on the college campus. And I was with a group of guys, and, and there was a young man who, who <clears throat> excuse me, I had already planned to have breakfast with the next morning. And I, I knew some, there were some things that were going on in his life, and, and I, we'd been talking about them over time, but I had challenged him several different times. I was going to go meet with him again to really uh, just dive into his life about some decisions that he was making and so I got up really early. I remember I got home late, and I got up really, really early for this breakfast meeting. And I wrote down all these different things I was going to say. And I had all my points ready, and I had a tight argument. If I went to preach, I'd be a lawyer. I mean, I had my, my argument was sealed. And I was going to lay it out for, for this is why you, sh- you should stop what you're doing and, and do what I'm... I think that this is clearly what God's Word says. And so I had all these... I had my, my speech was ready. And so we sit down for breakfast, and within 30 seconds, he looks at me, and he goes, hey, I just want to tell you something. He said, I went home last night, and I got out my Bible. 
And I just kept reading it over and over. And I looked at that passage that you showed me the night before. And as I began to pray and I began to read my Bible, it just became clear to me, DT, that I need to give up my plans and submit to God's. So he said, I'm sure that's what you were going to talk to me about uh, today, but I just want you to know I've already made the decision. I'm floored. You know, I'm good. Like, we don't have to discuss that now. I was floored. I remember thinking, like, what do, but I have my list. I mean, I was ready. And I don't even know what we talked about after that, but it didn't matter. And I will never forget the moment I'm, I'm in my truck in downtown Raleigh. I'm about to turn right onto Hillsborough Street off the campus of NC State. And this smile came over my face, and I went, wow, it worked. God's word changes hearts. And yes, I knew it and had known it, but it still amazes me to this day that God's word has the power to change hearts, that God's word has the power, that, that the word of God is just as living and just as active today as it was when it was written years and years ago. And there's no doubt that all of you have stories of strongholds in your life that through prayer and that through your prayer and, and quite frankly, the prayers of others, maybe it's how you came to faith in Christ, that we have all have and you all have spiritual strongholds that the Lord defeated through his word and through prayer. God uses the things that seem foolish to advance God's kingdom. We see that in his plan. And finally, we get to the fall of Jericho, and we see God's provision of victory. And in 8... Verse, excuse me, verses 8 to 21, it gives an account of the marching and the trumpets and the miracles of the walls come crashing down. And if you read that whole long narrative, you'll kind of see, like right before they, they go in there, there's all of a sudden these more instructions, and, and scholars think that that's essentially saying that all that had happened before, that Joshua had given the people those instructions, but they were important instructions nevertheless. And in verse 17, we see that it's called the city is devoted to destruction. And if you notice, Joshua commands the people to destroy everything except the silver and the gold and the bronze and the iron because those are going to be reserved for the Lord's treasury. But everything else is to be destroyed. And not just everything, but every person. Every person except Rahab and Rahab's family. And time does not permit us to dig, dig deeply into Rahab, her story, and, and everything that is involved with that. But I would encourage you to go back and look at that. The same Rahab that we learned in chapter 2 hid the spies. Rahab, who is spared, not because of her good works, but because she trusted in God by faith. And it's because of that that Rahab is spared destruction. And it's the same Rahab whose name is written in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. 
Now, it's a pretty sobering account, isn't it? The destruction of a city, the destruction of a people. Verse 21, listen to this. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of a sword. It should make us uncomfortable. It should, to a degree, rattle us, right? Especially the destruction of a city that occurs at the command of God himself. God Almighty himself commanded this to happen. And while it is difficult to deal with, and it is difficult to understand, there's a few things we need to understand. And the first is that we have to remember that God promised this years before. All the way back to Genesis 15, if you recall. He says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then we see in verse 1 that the city is shut up tight. And we learn from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, that, that a city that opened its gates and a city that pleads for mercy would receive mercy from God. That God would forgive. But if, but if they did not, then God would bring judgment. And here's a city sealed up. It's not opening its gates. It's not pleading for mercy. It's ready to wage war and to wait out the siege. And so it, it should make us uncomfortable. And as Sinclair Ferguson writes, that it in some ways is probably inconceivable that human sin could that human sin could deserve such judgment. And he says, but if we are asking that, we're pondering that, then we're asking the wrong question. Because he said we've got to flip the question. The question is, how inconceivable is the sin? that deserves that kind of justice. How inconceivable is the sin that deserves that kind of judgment? And it's clear that the idolatry and the wickedness of the Canaanites was at an all-time high. And the creator God, who's a jealous God, and a just God, brings his righteous judgment on the people in Jericho. You know, as we ask this, we're immediately pointed back to the cross, aren't we? We're immediately pointed back to another time when God's divine and righteous judgment is poured out on Jesus. We're reminded how inconceivable was the sin that sent our Savior to the cross. That it was our sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, that sent Jesus to the cross. And it's a, it's a moment in time that, that points us back to that. Where we go, how could God? 
And then we look and go, how could God to his son? And then we realize it is an act of mercy and love for you and for me. That he poured out his righteous judgment on Christ and not you or I. And that's good news. And so the story of Jericho does eventually point us to Jesus. And it points us to the cross, but it points us to the second coming. Because we know that when Christ returns, there will be a judgment. These are things that, like, you know what? These are things we don't like to think about or talk about, but they're realities. That Christ is coming back. And there will be a final judgment where God will again remove all things that stand in the way of his glorious kingdom. And so if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you, as you read the story of Joshua, what do you do with it? Cling to the promises of God. Be reminded daily of the promises of God for your life that are yours in Christ Jesus. Walk in obedience. It's a call to walk in obedience to the the plan that God has for you to live as if there is a second coming and a judgment. Not out of fear, out of gratitude for a Savior who took God's righteous judgment for you. Jesus in our place. Friends, that's good news if you're here and a follower of Christ. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're angry. This is a very, I I know people who have have problems with this story. How How could nice Jesus in the New Testament be the same God in the Old Testament who did this to these people? Doesn't make sense. Couldn't be real. Couldn't happen. If that's you tonight, let's talk. I would love to talk to you more about this. Talk to one of our pastors after. We would love to dialogue with you about, about the Scripture and, and the veracity of Scripture. We would love to come and talk to you tonight. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus, tonight my encouragement to you is you see God's righteous judgment and how it was poured out on Christ that would you tonight consider bowing your knee in submission to Christ as your Savior? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story and the narrative of Scripture. Thank you for your promise to deliver and your plan that does not always go according to our plan, but it's a plan that can be trusted and, that a, pl- and a plan that we're called to obey and the provision of victory, the victory over sin that we have because of Jesus. On the, and so we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.